Good morning. Last week, we began to see Jesus making things new. New wine. Today, we'll see new worship. Um, if you don't have uh, ESV Journal Bible of John, Carol, you have some? So if you want one of these and you don't have one, Carol, raise your hand. Uh, just, just raise your hand and Carol will give you one. Because it's really a great opportunity to, um, to have the scripture and have a place to write notes. So, so David Foster Wallace. I had never heard his name, but I guess he is an author. He wrote a book called Infinite Jest, and uh, he was not a believer when he was uh, asked to give a commencement service at Kenyon College. So what's really interesting, I'm going to read you a quote, and this is the young college students uh, you know, beginning their new life after college. This is what he says about worship. Here's something else that's weird, but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age like start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Well, he nailed it. There is no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships. So the question is, what are we worshiping? As Wallace points out, worshiping money, ourselves, sex, leisure, will eat you alive. You will never have enough. The new car will get old. You, you must return from the latest vacation. This sort of worship never can satisfy. So what choice will satisfy? I want to show you that today. I want to show you that because Jesus is the new temple, our worship can become new. Our worship can become new. And if you have a, 
our literacy packet, I have an outline. I want to look at the drama and setting, then the demonstration, then the demand, the destroy and rebuild the temple, the finding moment and when the disciples remember. Now, before we do this, I need to set the stage. Um, if you have a worship packet, I have a picture in the worship packet of the temple. Because we don't, we don't live in that first century, and it's no longer in existence as far as the temple is concerned. So look at verses 12 and 13. After this, he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Okay, first, a little geography, okay? I love geography. After the wedding in Canaan, Jesus went down to Capernaum. Now, in the first century, they didn't talk north and south, but elevation, right? So Canaan is 300 feet, well, 300 feet above sea level, right? And Capernaum is 682 feet below sea level, though it's northeast, right? Jesus and his mothers and brothers went down there because Capernaum was like Jesus' ministry hub. You'll see that throughout the Gospels. And after a few days, they went south, but up to Jerusalem. 2,450 feet, right, is Jerusalem. Everyone goes up to Jerusalem because not only is it higher, it is the capital of that area of Palestine. So, let's talk about the Passover. The Passover, just give me a little primer, celebrating Israel's release from slavery in Egypt. Your mind might, if you're older, might go to Charles and Heston, right, in the Ten Commandments, or it might go to, if you're younger, to the Prince of Egypt. You know the story, right? Moses goes to Pharaoh, telling them to set my people free. Pharaoh refuses. God sends nine plagues. The last plague is the death of each firstborn in Egypt. On the night of the plague, God tells the people of Israel to kill, this is important, an unblemished lamb and take the blood and put it on the doorframe, right? Then when the angel of death comes upon Egypt, he will see the blood and pass over, pass over the house, preserving the firstborn of, in that house. So Pharaoh then, you know the story, he lets the people go, he chases them, they go through the Red Sea, and Moses then goes to the mountain of God and receives the Ten Commandments. But maybe you don't know, remember, but when the Lord gave the Ten Commandments, he said, I want everybody to go to the feast of Passover in Jerusalem, in where the temple, the 
tent of meeting is. So thus, Jesus is attending the Passover. Okay? Now, you have this picture um, in, the, in the liturgy packet. So what I want to do is I want to take a little time to walk through what the temple complex looked like. I want you to take a tour because it's really important for what we're going to talk about. Now, in the middle, the tallest building is the temple proper, okay? Inside this is the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. The Holy of Holies is the most sacred place and only the high priest with the blood of the sacrifice could enter behind the curtain once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And on the other side, in the temple of the outside of the Holy of Holies, is the holy place where the priests um, would come daily to offer incense and prayers. Okay? The father of John the Baptist, that's what he was doing when the angel appeared to him in Luke 1. Now outside the temple, you have this other court. It's really small, but it's called the Court of the Israelites where Jewish men were allowed to observe the priests sacrificing Passover animals on the altar. And then the area outside that court was called the court of the women. That's where the Jewish women were allowed to enter and worship. Okay? Now, there's this bigger area you see on either side of the temple. That is called the court of the Gentiles. You see... There's a little wall that separates the temple proper and the court of the Gentiles. That's called the Soreg. And it has a little sign on it that said, if you are a Gentile and you cross over, you'll be responsible for your own death. It's serious. It's a big deal. Now, each year of Passover, Jewish men would enter the court of the Israelites, confess their sins to the priests, present a, a sacrifice, an unblemished sacrifice of cattle or a lamb or a pigeon, depending on their economic status, and the priests would kill it and offer, burn it on the altar. Now, these animals, it's all background, so you need to know this. They had to be unblemished and they had to be uh, approved by the Jewish leaders. So the temple leaders decided as a service, right? They knew their marketing, that they would offer animals for purchase. So if you lived in Capernaum, you didn't have to carry your lamb all the way down to Jerusalem, you know, a 30, 40 mile trip. Um, so they did that. And, and when they did that, they used to have it in Kindred Valley, you know, on the, as Jesus went through to the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. There was a little valley there. They had it there. But then some really bright young marketing expert thought, you know, it would be better to have, like, a point of sale. Like, you know, you've been to Target and they, they uh, Christian, is he here? Christian and Melanie used to deliver uh, you know, you, you order something from Target, they bring it out, just like that. So what they decided that 
they needed to put all these animals somewhere. Where are they going to put them? <laughs> Look at the area outside the, the court of the Gentiles. Now, give you an idea. A super target is 175,000 square feet. Okay? Adam's not here, is he? He should know that. But the court of the Gentiles is four to five super targets. It's big, right? Right? So you have, now imagine, you have the court of the Gentiles filled with cattle and sheep and tables, right? And about 75,000 Gentiles trying to worship, right? Can you hear the noise? Can you smell the animals? Right? The cattle lowing, the, the bleeding of sheep. How could they worship? This is where we see the demonstration from Jesus. Enter Jesus in the Passover scene in Jerusalem, AD 28. Remember that John is describing the beginning of Jesus' ministry. There's also a cleansing at the end of his ministry, after the triumphal entry. This is a, this is a, a, a first one, okay? So Jesus goes into the temple. Look at verse 14. And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making them whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house, my father's house, a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus enters the temple complex, sees what it has become, he picks up cords laying around, he makes a whip, and he gets everything out. That in itself seems like a miracle to me. You ever try and move cows? I, I haven't, but I have friends that tried. It's not easy, okay? Do not make my father's house into a house of trade. Here is a place for worship. For Gentiles who have believed in the Messiah. And they can't. As D.A. Carson puts it, I love it. Instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there is bellowing of cattle and bleeding of the sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there is noisy commerce. Seeing Jesus cleanse the temple, Psalm 69.9 comes to the mind of the disciples, right? Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus felt the fervor of what worship should be. 
in his father's house. Now you see the problem here? You see the sin problem here? Our sinful hearts taint good and holy things. The temple complex, the whole thing was supposed to be for worship. And the leaners made it. Their greed made it into something else. We tend to drift in our worship, don't we? We tend to drift in our zeal. It's a little at a time. I have an example of this. I, I served in Hutchinson with Dan Moose, some of you know him. He's the head of church planning for our district. And one time at a leadership meeting, he was kind of boasting that, you know, he was pretty much on top of things, and he notices things when they start to drift. And, and then you work for something like Paul Burr works for you. So what I did was I decided to move his desk one inch a week. One inch. For 18 weeks. And by, you know, after about a while, every, every, the whole leadership team is in on it, except Dan, right? They would come in like, did you know the shit? Nope. Didn't know this. So after 18 weeks, um, he was talking about the same subject, how he, you know, he doesn't like things drift. And, and I said, well, Dan, uh, have you noticed that you desk? has moved. By this time, what, a foot and a half, right? He goes, I wondered why my computer cord was really being stretched. Because he had a laptop, right? So we laugh, right? We laugh at that. But this is how our worship drifts, right? And just speaking of my life, right? It, it can be really subtle, right? Sometimes I, I grab a novel instead of maybe the scripture. Maybe I play Wordle before I read my scripture. Maybe as I'm playing, I, I Google something on my phone, right? See, this is what happened in Jerusalem, right? The Jewish leaders did not wake up one day and decide to turn in the temple complex into a market. What happened? Well, here's my thing. Here's my thought. One day, the money changers came to them and said, you know, it'd be really easier if, if we had the money table right at the temple. You know, for, for the convenience of the, uh, of the customers, right? And then, you know, and then the guys with the pigeons said, hey, can we just set up our table here? It won't, it won't take up anything. We got five or six super targets. No, it doesn't take much table. And then, and then what happened? And then the drift begins, right? The, the cattle come in, the sheep, and all of a sudden, you have a point where the father's house has become a house of trade. Can you identify any areas in your life where that zeal for the gospel has drifted. 
And then there's some people here who are really not sure about Jesus at all, right? Have you ever looked at your life and said, how in the world did I get here? It wasn't overnight. It's subtle. We become what we worship. So what's the answer? Well, Jesus is about to change the way we look about worship. See, our worship can become new. Our worship can become new. And so how does this happen? Well, the Jewish leaders, remember, Jesus is new to them. And they're going, um, hey, can you show us a sign? Look at verse 18. This is a man for a sign. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? I think they were thinking about a miracle. Maybe they heard about the new wine. They were looking for something dramatic that would give Jesus authorization. They thought he may be a prophet, but they were looking for something big. Well, look at point four. Jesus says, verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus' reply wasn't an instant miracle like calling down fire, but rather a prediction or prophecy. You can imagine the Jewish leaders looking around, right? Huge, the temple. It's been started by Herod the Great in the year 19 or 20 BC. It's been 46 years. It's going to be continuing till AD 70. How are you going to destroy this? And then rebuild it? Rebuild it in three days? And they're thinking, like, in addition, like, hey, Destroying the temple, that's actually against, it's a capital crime, not only to the Jews, but to the Romans. How, you know how we know that? Because two years later, right, at Jesus' trial, somebody says, I, Jesus said this, I will destroy this temple and raise it in three days. So how is this a sign? Well, Three days in the Old Testament is a symbol for restoration of Israel. Would Jesus usher in the destruction of the Romans in a new age of Israel, restored kingdom? Is this what Jesus said? Well, I hate to break it to you, but let's go back to eighth grade grammar. Okay? I know that's bad. But Jesus didn't say, I will destroy. He said, destroy this temple. When you tell your kids, make your bed, what you're really saying, you're giving them a command, you make your bed. Okay? Or you take out the garbage. So what the people, was, what Jesus was saying to the Jewish leaders, you will destroy this temple. Jesus was talking about the temple 
of his body. Jesus' sign was his death and resurrection that would come in two years. You are going to kill me, and I will raise myself up from the dead. Wow! What a prediction! And that brings us to the defining moment, verses 20 and 21. The Jews then said, verse 20, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. The Jewish leaders are thinking physical temple. But Jesus is speaking of a new temple. He is the new temple. It's new. He is. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus was identifying himself as the new and true temple. He was going to become the new center of worship for not only the Jews, but for the whole world. God's presence would no longer dwell in a building in the Holy of Holies. No. God's presence is, a, is new. It's a now a person. How do we know this? Remember John chapter 1, 14, what does it say? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. D.A. Carson again says, Jesus' body, in which the Word became flesh, in this temple, the ultimate sacrifice would take place. Within three days of the death and burial, Jesus Christ, the true temple, would rise from the dead. Jesus is the new and better meaning place between God and human beings. He replaces the physical Jewish temple, and also fulfills its purposes. First, Jesus offers true forgiveness. The temple was a place of sacrifice, right? To forgive sins. That's the Passover is the ultimate symbol because when the priest would sacrifice the lamb and the blood would atone and wipe away the sins of the people. Through his death on the cross, Jesus forgives our sins. Jesus, as the new temple, reminds us that we can now go to him for forgiveness because he has died and became the once and only sacrifice, taking our sins upon him. And thus, Jesus fulfills the saying of John the Baptist in John 129, where he say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as John the Baptist called people to repentance, Jesus calls us to repent and believe the gospel by recognizing he is the place of forgiveness, the new temple. Our worship can become new. 
Jesus is the new temple. We worship him. And it's then our hearts that must be cleansed. As we come to worship. See, Jesus is still zealous for a clean worship place. And that's our hearts. Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Sanctification is the word for cleansing of our lives that God is doing. Jesus has the right to clean his temple. He wants us. He wants to make us new and clean. That brings us to verse 22, that the disciples remember and believe. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Remember and believe. I like what John Calvin says about this. He says, we know the reasons behind what God is doing in our lives is not immediately perceived by us. But afterwards, afterwards, in the process of time, God makes known his, to us his purpose. Twice in our passage, the disciples remembered if you're here and not quite convinced, don't worry. You're in good company. Carol and I were certainly not convinced in early 1985. The disciples didn't understand at first either. But when they saw the resurrection, they remembered and they believed. And it's really my prayer this morning that someday you will remember this passage and believe. Not because I'm such a great preacher, but because God is a great reminderer. I just made that word up. Reminderer. So Jeremy mentioned uh, new creation motif in John 2 last week. And that's why I asked Matthew to play a Christmas song. At creation, Adam and Eve walked with God in the Garden of Eden. They enjoyed his presence. When they sinned, God drove them out of Eden, closed the gate. Then you fast forward to John 1.14, right? And the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. And the theme of John is what? Come and see. Come and see the One who is present with us again. And who will open Eden again. When Jesus took 
our sin and punishment on the cross and died the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place was torn in two. Nothing can separate us from God's presence anymore. The way to God was now open. And we could be in God's presence through the new temple, Jesus. So here's the good news. Hear it. Eden is open again. And Jesus invites us to come and see. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Whether it's the first time, or you've drifted, or maybe you're firmly following Jesus, come. Come. Come and see Jesus. The new temple for new life in his presence. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you that you have opened the way to you. We ask you that you would draw us to yourself. You love to do that. And I pray that you will help us to remember and believe that Jesus is making worship new in our hearts. Thank you for doing that, Lord. We give you praise. In Jesus. Amen. The Lord's Supper is an invitation to share the elephant elements to proclaim Jesus' death until he comes. On the cross, right, Jesus' body was broken. That's what the bread represents. The cup reminds us of his shed blood, shed on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. If you have put your trust in Jesus, the table is for you. Come to the table. Come and see Jesus at the table as a new temple. If you're not believing in Jesus yet, we're glad you're here. Let this table be an invitation to observe. Yet not as observer only, but a curious questioner. We're glad you're here. And as you're coming up, I want to remind you what Paul said in, in his instructions to the Corinthians. He, he talked about examining ourselves and then eating and drinking. So let the Lord cleanse your house. And come and celebrate peace. Come forward.